Good morning, church. Uh, welcome to City Bible Church. My name is Marwan, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, and it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, let me begin by welcoming the kids. Good morning, kids. I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy every time there's a, a family Sunday, which is the fifth Sunday of the month. Next year, uh, we'll be doing that more regularly. Uh, Lord willing, we'll do uh, once a month where the children will be joining us. And so I'm happy you're here with us. I hope you're able to follow along well. Uh, and what that means for the rest of us is it's going to be just a little bit noisier this morning, maybe more than normal. That's okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's good for us to, to hear children in the house of God. Uh, but I do want to let you parents know that the yellow room is open. So if you did need some extra space, uh, you're welcome to go down there and still hear the sermon. Uh, let me also say happy Reformation Sunday. Uh, for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, on October 31st, the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis uh, on the door of the church in Wittenberg, uh, and so marked uh, kind of in an, in an official way, uh, at least history says, so the Protestant, the start of the Protestant Reformation. And so on the last Sunday of October, Christians all over the world remember that historic moment. Now, if you were with us at the beginning of October, uh, the first Sunday of the month, uh, when we started the book of James, I began with a quote by Luther, who, if you remember, didn't love the book of James very much. Uh, and so it feels appropriate to quote him again on this day and for this passage. The only thing is that this is a quote from his preface of his commentary to the book of Romans, so not the book of James. But uh, in an almost ironic way, he captures, maybe even better than any other commentator, the basic message of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Let me read this quote from Martin Luther. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it to not to be doing good constantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it is already done them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Now, you might uh, be a scholar on the book of James. You might have only barely heard anything about the book of James. But if you have heard even one thing about this letter, uh, you've likely heard the phrase that comes from today's passage. Faith without works is dead. Now, it's from those words that I titled the sermon series, right? Faith that works, which is also today's sermon title. Faith that works. And as we look into the passage, we're going to notice something right away. This passage is crucially important because James confronts us and he tells us that not all faith saves. He wants us to know that it is possible to claim and to actually believe that you have a saving faith when you don't. And I'm mindful that this may be true for some of you here even this morning. Our passage, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, uh, divides up pretty easily into two halves. 
verses 14 through 20, we have two examples of a false faith, of a non-saving faith. Then verses 21 through 26 are two examples of a true and saving faith. And our main point today is a popular phrase. There's kind of different wordings of it, but a popular phrase since the time of the Reformation. A version of it has been used and spoken by Martin Luther, by John Calvin, and others. Here it is. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves. So kids, if you have that paper, the sermon notes, it'll tell you the main point. Here it is. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning, gathering us around your word. And we pray, as we always do, Father, speak to us as you are faithful to do so through your word. Give us ears to hear your voice, Father. In the midst of all the distractions and things happening around us and and even within us, Father, calm our hearts and give us eyes to see you this morning, ears to hear your voice. We pray these things, believing that you hear us, in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bible, you can open to James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, or you're welcome to look in the bulletin, or it'll be on the screen. Let's just read that first verse, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Now, James right away tells us what he's going to be talking about, saving faith. And right away he shows that there is a possibility of an empty faith, right? An unsaving faith. Now, with this passage and with with any passage when we go to God's word, it's necessary to remember the context in order to rightly understand the passage. And so James is writing as, as he opens up this letter, to Christians with a Jewish background. They're scattered abroad, the the 12 tribes who are scattered. What that tells us is that these are believers who had a theological foundation, and that they often took pride in their theological knowledge. This point is going to be helpful for us as we look at the differences between James and Paul, and I'm going to come back to those differences a bit later. But it's good to remember that Paul... His ministry and his writing was primarily to Gentiles, those who don't have a Jewish background, who were kind of brought in to to faith from outside. These Gentiles had no clear idea about God, about faith, about the church, about, about anything. And so Paul is writing with them in mind. James is primarily writing to Jewish believers. That's who he addresses his letter to. The reason I say primarily is because others will hear it. This letter has been passed around. We are hearing it ourselves. And so he had a primary audience in mind, but others, of course, have heard it. And he's mindful that they they, they felt a sort of special favor because of their ethnicity. They were chosen by God. It's deeply ingrained in them. And, And so he writes to an audience that he knows And we're going to see the different ways he comes against their wrong thinking, finding identity in anything other than Christ. Now, you'll remember maybe from the introduction that even though James's letter was written before any of Paul's letters, it's very likely that James was familiar with Paul's teachings. 
And so it might be that as, as we read James's words, he, he's correcting the believer's abuse of Paul's teaching. Right? Even Paul himself, he, he, he corrected what people thought he said. Do we continue to sin so that grace may abound? No, of course not. Or do we live in this way or that way? No, he, he corrected them. So it's possible that James is correcting these believers' abuse of Paul's teaching. And that's why, as we're going to see, he, he sounds almost opposite, even at times word for word opposite to Paul's writing. But maybe he wasn't thinking of Paul as he wrote. We don't know for sure. But it's clear that either way, James sees that these believers had a false concept and false understanding of faith, and so he's writing to correct it. Brothers and sisters, what good is it? I actually think that's a helpful way to think about this whole passage. The faith that we have The faith that God has given us to see him and to know him. What's the purpose of it? Does it do any good? Does it have any usefulness? And James is telling us that it must. Otherwise, our faith is no good. Our faith is false. Now, a key to understanding James' point uh, comes from this phrase claims to have faith, right? So he's not speaking about faith that is saving, but a person who claims to have faith, and we're going to look at that more in verse 18, but let's continue with our passage. Read with me verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. The first example is about someone you know in the church, right? A brother or a sister, and they have what seems to be substantial needs. They they don't have sufficient food or enough clothing. And instead of helping them in their need, you send them good thoughts and warm wishes. And James is rightly asking, what good is that? What, what's the purpose of that? Does it do anything? And the answer is no, it's, it's not good at all. He, he wants us to understand that saving faith isn't only good, but it does good. And in this example, he's showing us that a false faith gives no practical help, right? This is practical. This isn't spiritual or theological. It's not substantial. It's practical. A brother or sister is hungry and without proper clothing, and your lack of faith gives no practical help. You see, faith reveals itself. We considered that in the first chapter, didn't we? James called us in the opening of his letter to consider it joy when we go through various types of trials and suffering. Why? Well, it's because the testing of our faith is a good thing. It bears and it produces good things in our lives. We consider that if we're never put in a situation where we need to trust God, not that we have the option, but where we need to trust God, how will we know that we really trust Him? And so, just like trials strengthen and reveal our faith, 
opportunities to do good, do the same. Faith reveals itself, and our action to human need is one of those ways. Doing good unto others when presented with opportunity will prove or disprove the living power of faith, whether it's alive or dead. Now, I'm not sure your reaction to that. It feels like, well, is this about works or is it about faith? But, but it makes sense, doesn't it? We can at least agree that logically it makes sense. How can you be united by faith to another person, right? That's what unites us. Different backgrounds, different experiences in life, older and younger, different ranges of wealth. What are we doing here together in this room? We're united in Christ. And so how can we be united by faith to one another and we have the ability and opportunity to do good and to relieve suffering and choose not to? James says that the only way that, that would happen is because your faith isn't true. It's not alive, it's dead. And so in the same way, faith that doesn't produce good works is dead. Now, let me quickly read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I, I think that's on the screen for you. Uh, because I want to keep connecting, not just today, but throughout the letter, connecting Paul and James. Too, too often, too much of history kind of has, has brought them against each other. Or at least our initial reading will do that. But I want to show you that it's the same word of God. It's the same truth from the very beginning to the end. And Paul writes, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Saved by grace for good works. It's similar to our main point this morning, right? Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Look with me to James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. So James now is creating a sort of scenario that someone might have. He's not speaking to them. He's kind of, he's brought in a, a character into his teaching, right? Someone might say, my gift is faith. I'm good at that. I'm good at believing. Your gift is good works. We don't all have the same gifts, brother or sister. I can see James rolling his eyes here at this scenario. At least maybe his heart. I've, I don't think I've ever rolled my eyes, but oh, my heart has, has responded to people in this kind of way. You see, faith and works are never to be separated. Faith isn't a matter of what you think. It's what you think, yes, and what you do. James says, I will show you my faith by my work. That's how you know I have it. There must be a physical and visible evidence that someone believes. That's what James is saying. And 
The New Testament is filled with examples, but, but I think Mark chapter 2 is a helpful one. It won't be on the screen, maybe just one verse in a moment, but this is one of Jesus' miracles. Early on in the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're told the story of four friends who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. Now, why would, they, why would they do that? Well, they had faith that Jesus could heal him, right? Or else they wouldn't have done what they did. We're told that Jesus was teaching in an overcrowded house, and, and they couldn't access him because people were, were outside, looking from outside in, trying to, trying to hear Jesus' teaching. And so what they did was they got onto the roof, and they dug up a hole through the roof right above Jesus' head, and then lowered their friend down. We're told that Jesus forgave the paralytic uh, and, and, and ended up healing him. So he forgave him of his sins and he ended up healing him. But I want to point out what Jesus said when he was lowered down from the roof. This will be on the screen, Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Action based on faith made their faith visible. That's what Jesus saw. Let's keep reading in, in James, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. You believe that God is good? Sorry, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? And so the, the purpose, again, it's still that someone, right? The senseless person. He's still kind of speaking to this imaginary character for the sake of argument, for the sake of instruction. And the purpose of the second example is that a false faith doesn't save. A false faith doesn't save. Faith that is just intellectual doesn't produce salvation. Now, remember with me that the Jews were proud of their right theology. They lived in a world that was pagan, whether it was godless or people believed in many gods. The Jews were different and saw themselves different and saw themselves separate from the rest of the world because they believed in one true God. That's more common in our world now because of the major uh, faiths in the world believe in one God. But at that time, that wasn't the case. And so it was a huge part of their identity. And so what I think is in a, in a tone of sarcasm, James says, wow, good job, guys. Do you know who else believes the same truth? The demons. James points out that the demons also believe this precious truth, and yet they're not saved. Right? It's, it's a faith based on right theology, right doctrine, but it's not a saving faith. And I think there is a sub-point, too, here, as, as, as we dig in deeper into the passage. They, James is saying that they believe what you say you believe, and, and they shudder. What is that shuddering about? Their faith has even produced a sort of physical and visible response. Again, he's not speaking to them. It's an imaginary situation with some made-up person, but he wants them to reflect. He wants them to be introspective and consider that's why he says, are you willing to learn? Friends, I, I don't want to uh, discount the importance of intellect 
intellect is important. Thinking is good and it's, it's necessary. We've seen James refer to this a few times already. Consider this thing, right? Understand this thing. And so here he's asking, are you willing to learn? You see, what we believe is important, not because of the importance of right and wrong, but because belief affects and reflects how we live. Belief affects how we live. You see, we can claim anything that we want, but just because we claim something doesn't mean that it's true. What we claim doesn't always give an accurate reflection of what we really think and believe. What does? Our actions. And so, what James has done so far is he's highlighted a false faith, right? An empty and dead faith. He's highlighted the claim of having faith. And now he's going to offer two examples about a true and saving faith. Look with me to verses 21 through 24. Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was God, called God's friend. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is where, where many of us who are familiar with Paul's words start to feel a little bit nervous. Right? Out of context, we hear, we hear words used in a complete opposite way. Right? Paul says, we are justified by faith alone. Then James says, we are justified by works and not by faith alone. But what's going on? Just as faith is being used more broadly in verses 14 to 20, right? He, James is using the word faith as a faith that is claimed, a faith that is only declared. Justified is used in a different sense in these examples. Paul uses justified to express a declared righteousness. We are justified not because of our works, but because God has declared that we're righteous. Right? He has counted us as righteous. That's how Paul uses the word justified. But James uses the word justified in another way that it could also be used, as vindication or as evidence of righteousness. I'm going to show you in, in the text how, how this makes sense and how it comes together as we consider the example of Abraham. But first... My own example. If I were to ask you, and this is, uh, if you're new here, we, there's not a whole lot of participation between you and me. I mean, there's an active listening and hopefully taking notes and engaging with the Word of God. But there's not a whole lot of dialogue. This is a moment in the sermon where there's going to be a bit of dialogue. Let's see how that goes. If I were to ask you what my favorite dessert is, what, uh, amen, what would you say? And the, the whole church said knefe, right? Yes, you, you're right. Uh, and, and you've warmed my heart with, with your response. Now, why do you know that? You know that because I have declared it a thousand times. One way or another, it's found its way into many of my sermons. My name is Marwan. I'm the, uh, I'd like to add, unintentionally hip pastor of CBC. This is a little reference to Pastor Enwar's sermon last week, if, if you weren't here. 
and I love Knafi. That's That should be on my bio, right, online. So let's imagine, again, a made-up scenario that we went out for dessert. The place offered Knafi, but your pastor, me, chose not to order it. Now, okay, I might have not been, I know there's a gasp, blasphemy, right? Uh, there could be lots of reasons, right? I, I, maybe I wasn't hungry. Maybe I was craving some, something else. I'm allowed that. Knafi is not the only thing I eat uh, by, by God's uh, grace and self-control in my life, right? But what if it happened again? What would you be thinking? I think you'd be, you'd be confused. You would think that what I was claiming about my love for Knafi wasn't true. But if I ate that Knafi, and every time we went out for dessert, I ordered and enjoyed and delighted in that opportunity to eat knefe. You would say that my eating of and delighting in knefe has justified the many claims that you've heard. Whether it's the traditional Lebanese-style knefe made out of smid or knefe nablusiyeh, whether it's a kake or on a plate, if it's drizzled with Nutella, which I've not had before, but I'm, I'm kind of hesitant, my action of eating knafe would evidence my declaration of love. James is saying that what we claim doesn't always give an accurate reflection of what we really think and believe, but our actions are always accurate. Now, a more generic way we can say it is, is what I saw repeated over and over again on social media recently. Actions speak louder than words. I'm on Twitter, or X, excuse me, formerly Twitter, uh, much more than, than I normally am because of everything that's happening. Um, and I don't know about you, but the, the, the situation in, in, in Palestine and Israel has sucked me in, and in many ways I feel stuck feel paralyzed by what should be done, what can't be done, what needs to be done. So I'm online and trying to engage in, in the ways that I, I feel I'm able to. And, and I saw a post last night by the U.S. delegate to the U.N. And she tweeted something about the importance of protecting the innocent Palestinian lives. And this is the same person who vetoed the resolution for a humanitarian pause. So said one thing and acted another way. And, and I, I saw that someone responded with a photo of her raising her hand as she vetoed this resolution. And the comment was, actions speak louder than words. It's true. But whether we agree or disagree or whether we want to or not, it's true, isn't it? It's common, and it's commonly understood that what you do shows what you believe. The Christian faith, friends, is a faith that works. It, it must work. It must be seen. And that's why James brings in as the first example Abraham, the father of faith himself. Now, this shouldn't be said, but, but I'll say it. James knows how salvation works. He, he, he's familiar with justification. His theology is more than fine. We don't have to be worried. And, and, and he's going to work it out for us here. Look with me to the passage. James chapter 2, verse 21. What James is doing is, is referring to Genesis chapter 22. And so this is the account of Abraham going up to the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's a picture of works. Now in verse 23, 
James is referring to an earlier account that goes back to Genesis 15. This is where God told Abraham that he would make him into the father of a great nation. We're told that Abraham believed God and he was counted as righteous. And this is a picture of saving faith. In between those, verses 22, or I guess after each one, verse 22 and verse 24, James connects them together. Notice with me that both verses start off with the words, you see. Now, this isn't just a connecting phrase like, therefore, or, and so, right? He's not just saying, you see. No, he's actually calling us to look. The same word in the Greek that James is using here uh, is, is the same word that Jesus used when he taught about adultery. And he says, whoever looks at a woman with lust. Or another example is when Jesus encourages us to fast and pray privately, he says, the father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Same word is used. And so James isn't just transitioning to a next thought. He's actually saying that faith is made visible by works. Good works are the evidence and justification that we have true faith. If Abraham didn't take his son to be sacrificed, what would we have seen? We would have seen that his faith wasn't true. But because God declared him righteous, because God gave him a true faith, his faith was justified, was vindicated when the opportunity came. Friends, once you understand this, the relationship between faith and works, everything clicks together. And it makes perfect sense. I'm reminded of the new command that Jesus gave to his disciples in John chapter 13. Do you remember what he told them? He said, by this, this new command, this command to love, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's visible. The faith that you have in me will prove itself to be true and as it's made visible and seen by others. And remember our main point. Faith alone saves. Right? That's the foundation. But things don't stop there. Right? Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Friends, Brothers and sisters, our works prove that we are alive in Christ. Let's remember the lessons uh, that James is teaching us from each example as we come uh, to a close or to a near close with our final example. Example one shows us that a false faith is useless towards others, right? You say you have faith, but you haven't done any good to someone else, so that's a false faith, and it's useless towards others. It doesn't give Practical help, it's no good. Second example, the demons. False faith is useless towards God. Right? It doesn't save, it's, it's rejected by God. Then we see a sort of mirror effect in the teaching. The first two examples mirror the second two. In example three, with Abraham, we see that true faith is useful towards God. Right? So it's, it's opposite of the second example. Right? Abraham's faith is seen and it's accepted by God. 
And then in this last example, we see a mirror of the first. True faith is useful towards others. So usefulness towards God and usefulness towards others. Those are the two marks that James is highlighting. It's good and it benefits others. Let's read the last two verses of James chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. In the same way, wasn't Rahab, the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by different routes? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What a powerful choice for a second example. From the father of the faith to a side character. From a patriarch, patriarch excuse me, to a prostitute. From a Jew to a Gentile. Now, if, if you're not familiar with the story of Rahab, uh, we can find it in Joshua chapter 2. Let me just summarize it. The Israelites were sent to conquer Jericho, and Joshua, as the commander uh, of, of uh, the Lord's people and the army there, he sent two spies into the city to investigate, to see what's happening, to, to kind of prepare. They went and stayed with Rahab. Now, the king of Jericho found out what's happening and looked around, and they approached Rahab, and there was an opportunity for her to turn them in. But she didn't. She actually redirected the search so that these two spies would be spared. Why? Why did she help them? Why did she hide them? Well, she tells them in this conversation in Joshua chapter 2 that she has heard of their God, the true God. She's heard of his power to save and, and how he brought his people out from Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea. She knows that God will accomplish his purposes. And now, if, if you just were to hear that, as you just did, it's pretty good. It sounds like true faith. It sounds like true belief, but how will we know? She acts upon her faith in good towards others when presented with an opportunity, right? It's a faith that works. And if we follow her story, though she is insignificant in a way compared to the father of the faith, she is listed with Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, what's known as the, the hall of faith, the, the different saints of the Old Testament, the, not saints as we understand them, but those who have believed in God, those who have been set apart by God recounting their stories, and there she is, listed amongst other faithful. It's beautiful uh, to see the power of God through His saving work and through saving faith. Anyone, friends, from a patriarch to a prostitute can truly believe. And we see that belief is what saves, right? It's, it's always been that way. There's not a different method of salvation in the Old Testament based on the New. No, it's always been believing that what saves, believing in God. Yes, it's true. The believers of the Old Testament didn't know all the details about Jesus, but what did they know? They understood that they couldn't save themselves. They understood and believed that God alone saves, and they believed that He would save 
Now for us, on, on this side of the cross, as is commonly said, we know the length that God went to save us. We know that he sent his son, his one and only son, to live a perfect life and to die the death that we deserved. We know by the testimony of scripture and by history that he died on the cross, that he was raised on the third day. We know that he took the punishment for our sin and he clothed us with his righteousness. And we who believe in him are counted as righteous. We are counted as heirs with Christ himself. We believe those same three things or those main things as the saints in the Old Testament. Right? We can't save ourselves. God alone is the one who saves and he will save us and he's done that through his son. Friends, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And if you've never put your hope and your trust and your belief in Jesus, I pray and have been praying that you would. Find the rest that you're looking for that you haven't been able to find. Find the peace that you've been searching for in Jesus. And all of those who are truly saved, for all of us who are united to Christ, the scriptures declare that we will bear good fruits as a result. I want to summarize all this in a, as a simple way to think about the relationship between salvation and works. We'll close with a couple of questions in prayer. Four ways that we can think of the relationship between salvation and works. First of all, works produces salvation. Works produces salvation. That is not Christian. It's not biblical. There is no Christian who believes that. If someone says, yes, this is how I earn salvation, though they say by their claim that they're a Christian, they're not. There is no such teaching that works can produce salvation. Number two, faith and works produces salvation. Faith and works produces salvation. This, friends, is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It has been and is still to this day. And many who identify as Roman Catholics uh, or any sort of variation from there believe this, that it's not only faith but works that leads to being saved, that leads to being accepted by God. And as we've considered today and many other times, the Bible doesn't teach that. Number three, faith produces salvation. Many Christians hold to this view and it's accurate. It's it's biblically true, but it's important to say that it's, it's incomplete. It doesn't just stay there. It's not like you just, okay, I believe, I, I prayed something, I said something. It's not just intellectual. It's not like just a ticket to heaven, right? It, that's, it's incomplete. The fourth way of thinking the relationship between salvation and works is what we teach, what we believe, what the entire New Testament declares and what James is teaching. Faith produces salvation and works. Faith produces salvation and works. And so as we close this morning, I want to ask a few questions. What is your hope in life and death? As a Christian, you know the answer is Christ alone. And I know that you will believe that in your heart and in your mind but how is it reflected in your life? How is it that others see 
that true and saving belief. I wonder, have you found times where your stability, your peace of mind, your, your baseline in life is affected because of health or financial struggles? Again, this isn't a call to perfection, but these are diagnostic questions. These are ways we can say, wait a minute, why am I so affected negatively when I have less money in my purse or my wallet? Actually, I feel pretty good and more comfortable when I have more. It makes sense in one way, but is our hope found in those things or is it found in Christ? As a reflection from the text directly, have there been times that we could have helped someone, but we chose not to? It's good to ask these questions. It's good to, to wrestle with these things. And my prayer encouragement is that we always, as James encourages us, we always set our eyes on Jesus. We glance at ourselves to, to ask real and necessary questions, but we gaze upon Jesus. Believe in him. And as you do, your faith will be strengthened. The, the, the call from James and from this morning isn't to start doing more things, not to start finding ways to do better and to do good. No, the call is to believe, keep looking to Jesus more deeply, trust in him and trust that his works are what have saved you. And your belief in his works is what has counted you as righteous. You have salvation because of him. And I, I guarantee, not by my testimony, but by the testimony of Scripture, that as your faith is strengthened, good works will come from your life because you are connected to the source of life. Friends, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you for your word, Lord, which is both piercing and comforting. Father, convicting and empowering. And, and, and Lord, we pray that, that you would do the work that only you can in our lives. Lord, we desire to be a people that bear more fruit, not because of ourselves or what we want to appear to others, but because we want to be faithful to your call in our lives. Lord, help us as a church to encourage one another towards godly living and good works. Father, both for our good, but ultimately for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.